These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. This episode of Into the Night was made possible by the unwavering support of our dedicated Patreon donors. Their generosity allows us to delve deeper into the mysteries that await us in the dark world of Five Nights at Freddy's. If you're captivated by the secrets we unveil and wish to be part of our journey, we invite you to explore our Patreon page. By becoming a patron, you not only gain exclusive access to bonus content, behind-the-scenes insights, and special perks, but you also play a vital role in sustaining the future of this podcast. Visit the link provided in the description below to learn more and join the Night Conclave. Disclaimer. Tonight's episode contains discussions about sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including suicide, mental illness, and trauma. We want to emphasize that the following content may be distressing for some listeners. In this episode, our intention is to foster understanding, empathy, and an open dialogue about these important issues that are both raised by the art medium and central to its symbolism and themes. We recognize that everyone's experiences are unique, and what would be helpful for one person may be difficult for another. We wrote this episode keeping in mind as many perspectives as we could, and we do encourage those who could be potentially triggered by this subject matter to listen to the entirety of tonight's episode if they can. Hello, and welcome to Shadow Scrying the official sister series of the Into the Night podcast. As always, I am your host, Nick. And thank you for listening. Well, here we are. The final book in the Tales from the Pizzaplex series. I thought we had one more after this. There were rumors of a ninth book on Amazon. And if not, there was always the chance of an unofficial series in the full book set collection. Similar to how Fazbear Frights, when it released its full series book set, there was an extra book of finished stories that didn't make the cut. But this is it. The end of a long and arduous road. We've had a fun trip, I had to say. It's been an adventure of great heights and somewhat illogical lows. But overall, the Tales from the Pizza Plex series has been a great addition to the lore and world of Finest of Freddy's. We've had so many great stories, lore reveals, and a deep exploration of this vast world that I did not expect from a follow-up from the Fazbear Frights. If you can forgive the metaphor, if Fazbear Fright was a mineshaft that had plenty of gold on top, but the more you dug deeper and kept at it, the more worthless dirt you excavated, Tails, while it may not have as much gold, the treasure that was there was much more spread out and of a higher purity. If you have been following the journey along with us, you may recall that I did not find the previous two additions to this series to be a worthwhile inclusion. I concluded that while the majority of the stories were of an improvement overall in comparison to Fazbear Frights, 
they still were not of the exquisite quality that lived up to the higher reputation that the inaugural stretch of novels had fostered. I would not say that I hated any of these novels. The description of itself is one I find both overused and would only utilize an exaggerated tone of my thoughts and opinions. But books 6 and 7 were disappointing. Details number 8, B7-2, a novella collection of which its titular tale is a direct sequel to not only my personal favorite Tales of the Pizza Plex novella, but my favorite Five Nights at Freddy's story in the entire franchise, leave this series on a high note? Or did it continue the downward trajectory of the series following the entries of Nexi and Tiger Rock? Oh my goodness, this book is so good. If you can't tell, I have such a huge smile on my face. Finally, finally, after so much time on this podcast, where I have to begrudgingly focus on being critical so we can discuss potential healing solutions, can I finally celebrate this series I love and its achievements yet again? The stories within B7-2 are a wonderful overall conclusion to the entire series that hits almost every single high note I think one of these books can achieve. We've got a great follow-up to B7, an amazingly dark story that utilizes the supernatural element of the series in Alone Together, and a direct entry that connects to the mainline games of Finance Freeze 4 and Sister Location with Ditto Phobia. Oh, and we get a conclusion to the <clears throat> crappy mimic epilogues, I guess, but who cares about that? Not even the mimic can bring this book down for me, because this book marks the final time I will ever have to endure another epilogue stinger. Until the next book series. I hate this channel. No! No! In fact, I'd argue that a prominent theme present in this book is that of conclusion. Each story seems to have this take on finality in of itself, both in that of a narrative aspect, but also on the book of one's life itself. B7-2, with it being a follow-up of the original B7, showcases the elements of how one ending is another beginning. The second novella, Alone Together is a fantastic tale on acceptance of an end to one's own series of stories. And the final novella, Dittophobia, is a cautionary tale on how if we are afraid to find out the next chapter in our lives, or the next book so to speak, so afraid to reach out to what could be in the unknown, that we instead keep repeating the same self-destructive sequence over and over and over again, letting our life story pass us by. With all these novellas dealing with death and finality, there is a dichotomy to it all, you know? In the same way you finish a book series looking back on those adventures and characters you read that enveloped you, and you're left to ponder the deeper meaning behind it all, it's like a long hallway we traveled, and now you look back to see all you have passed, and compare to what you know now, since you are much wiser and more well-versed, to what you thought back then and the conclusions you now come to. In many ways, it's similar to life itself, except for most of us, we keep looking back all the time, most often because we know we've made mistakes on our journeys, errors in our judgment that could be chalked down to simple social awkwardness, off-the-cuff decisions based on pleasurable desires, or even grievous moral errors. While it can be dark to have this be the main takeaway after I close the book, you know, to think on our own mortality, it did make me reflect on how important it is 
when we look back on our hallway, our story of life, for that last and final time, we do so knowing we did the best damn job we could have done. You know, not to get too biblical on you, but if you indulge me for a moment as I take the cross from underneath my flat cap, there is a lesson I learned a long time ago in my church when I was younger that always stuck with me. My youth pastor once told me that no matter your sin, you can't be redeemed in both yourself, those around you, and in the eyes of God. But that does not mean you are therefore immune to the consequences of what you have done. And in some ways, if that sin is therefore so egregious or so shameful or so plentiful that it results in you knowing you have to change, perhaps the best way to do that change is to perceive it as dying in order to be reborn. Not in a literal sense, of course, but in a metaphorical sense. As we will see in B7-2, sometimes the best way to look at improving your own life is to look at it as being reborn. That you may still be that person in name alone, but you are not that same person in soul or heart. After all, life is not ever as black and white as that. So for those of you who are listening who feel that your current life is seditious or you feel that when you move through that hallway of life, you find yourself always looking back. I don't know how much it is worth coming from a man who runs a FNAF podcast, who was obsessed with flat caps. But don't stop trying. You are someone worth taking care of, and you deserve to take care of yourself. And if you don't know how, then start out by doing it badly. You'll never learn without making mistakes. And if you keep looking back on your life, you already know the reference material you need to make adjustments. Don't don't let yourself be alone, nor let yourself succumb to a repetitious hell on earth. Live for yourself, for those who know and love you, and for those who don't know you and don't yet love you that will be robbed of that great joy, and the great joy of receiving your love in return. <laughs> I didn't expect this to get too melancholy. Well, what can I say? I'm a ginger with a heart, believe it or not. Those do indeed exist. <laughs> Well, with that said, let's get right into the first impression review. And as always, this review will be mostly spoiler-free. If we do begin to discuss spoilers on any of these books, with the exception of the epilogues, we will inform you beforehand. For those of you in the Spotify comments, no, that does not mean I won't talk about the plot details. Just because I talk about the plot and the setup of it does not mean it's a spoiler. <laughs> Furthermore, while we are here, for those listening, commenting on Spotify, asking where the video to the audio is, may I remind you that you are listening to this on Spotify? You'd be surprised how many times I get this comment. It's like once a week at this point. Is that and take a map from Prize Corner? It's been haunting me like an angry child with a crocodile mask for like three months now. Now, if you want a video version of the podcast, we are currently working on that on our YouTube channel, the link of which will be in the description down below. We are remastering all the standard Into the Night episodes, so you can find them down there. The audio of those remasters also do replace the audio on the official RSS feed, so even if you do prefer listening without visuals, you will still get the better audio, so everyone wins. If you prefer to listen to the original audio, all of those are cataloged in a collection on our Patreon as well, so there is a workaround if you prefer. Alright. If we are ready to begin, then I think we should start off this episode by once again just ripping the band-aid off and talking about the epilogue storyline. So, if you'll excuse me, 
while the transition meme plays, I'm going to take a shot of fireball before we begin. It's finally here, isn't it? The moment we both dreamed about. Oh, okay. <clears throat> well then, shall we? Now, for the sake of this being the finale of the series, I'm not going to do a funny bit or gaff at the epilogue suspense. I know I have shared my hesitancy and scathing appraisal of the storyline in the past, and spoiler alert, this epilogue did not change my feelings on the storyline at all. It's still really boring, the characters all suck and are annoying, and you want them to die to the point that you honestly start rooting for the mimic to murder them all. But I do have a new addition to my scathing critique to add. Why was this even the epilogue story to begin with? For just a quick summary, Lucia is the last remaining member of the Scooby-Doo gang that got themselves stuck in the now buried Freddy Fazbear pizza place from FNAF 6 and is now alone and still being hunted down by the Mimic. Recognizing the urgency of the situation, Lucia returns to the costume room where she schemes to execute a plan to trap the Mimic. However, she discovers that the Mimic has already infiltrated the room, prompting her to improvise and destroy any other costume to eliminate potential hiding spots, as the Mimic seems to always get into one before it attacks. Amidst a perilous game of hide-and-seek, Lucia manages to outsmart the Mimic, nearly escaping its clutches and successfully trapping it within the Jesser costume that was in itself a springlock suit. Lucia whacks it repeatedly with a metal pipe, causing the springlocks to come loose and stab the machine all over causing it to convulse in pain. Lucia, recalling the information she had read about the Mimic in the back office, knew there was an off switch for the endoskeleton on the back of its head. With it subdued, she quickly put her arm inside the suit and deactivated the Mimic. With the Mimic neutralized, Lucia's harrowing ordeal comes to an end and she escapes the building through a window, ultimately finding freedom, being later found by a Fazbear construction worker and collapsing in tears in his arms. Okay, so, like, what was even the point in all this, I inquire? I guess we learned that the Mimic was in the FFPS location the entire time, but was that really worth being the entire epilogue narrative's purpose? I mean, think back to Fazbear Fright Stitchline story, at least that Stinger story was based on having an overarching plot across the books that weaved its way through various stories. The Mimic is part of both the epilogue stingers and the novellas, but the stinger are just its stories in the middle? We see what happens to it in the past and what it does in the future. Why do we need to know this information? And why was it left to be in the overarching story? I mean, just spitballing ideas here, but wouldn't a much better storyline been a longer and more fleshed out combination of both the Mimic novella and the storyteller? I think I speak for everyone that a story that follows the higher brass at Fazbear Entertainment and the battle wits between corporation and inventor on this dangerous new creation is a much more interesting premise than the mimic just murdering people for like over 100 pages. You know, I had this debate on Twitter, X, whatever. In it, we were talking about how the series from a video game design and storytelling perspective was becoming more infantile and less horrific as a result. I discussed this in length in my Help 102 review, so if you wish to understand my full account, please give that a listen. But to recapitulate, I was asked if I was afraid of the series changing and evolving and becoming less dark as a result. Now, ignoring the false dichotomy of my overall viewpoint that was made, I do wish to respond to why I think it is so important that a series that was of a horror genre that bridges the generational gap 
a difficult feat that Fides of Freddy's once achieved is important. Answer me this. Why are we drawn to look into darkness? I mean, for all extensive purposes, the concept of the horror genre is illogical, am I not wrong? Why would we willingly both indulge someone conceptualizing and recreating through a fictional lens the worst that humanity and reality has to offer? It's clear it has an audience, the horror genre stands as a resilient and influential force, and even successful horror franchises, in all forms, often become cultural phenomena, influencing other genres and mediums, and Final of Freddy's is clearly no different in that regard. Is it not dangerous and delirious to constantly indulge in these tales of serial killers, child murderers, and spirits of the dead not passing on? Well, if by indulgement you mean relishing in the pain of others, I would say so. But I, and I'm going to expect that all those listening would agree, we don't engage in Finance of Freddy's or any other horror for that reason. We engage in it because, even if we don't realize nor can articulate it this way in the moment, it gives us a greater appreciation for life and the human experience. You cannot properly appreciate what you have and what you have experienced unless you have some sense not only of how terrible things could be, but of how terrible it is likely for things to be, given how easy it is for things to be so. We wander into the darkness, into the night so to speak, so not only to be ready for when, if ever, the darkness does appear, but to also have a better appreciation of the light when we are in it. And is the FNAF community not that in a nutshell? Look at how many people take this story of brutalized murder and desecration and abuse of childhood innocence, yet create so many wonderful fan art, animations, fan stories, fan games, and so much more on the widest array and spectrums of emotions. And going even deeper into the narrative of Vinus Freddy's itself, I believe this is why Michael Acton is one of the main reasons people, even though they can't articulate why, are so drawn to him despite his limited on-screen presence. The concept of a man who not only dies but is reborn through what appears to be supernatural force, perhaps his own will, perhaps divine intervention, or perhaps just the circumstances of luck itself, and chooses to continue traversing the darkness in order to do what is right, to face his demons and the devil that created them, is a fascinating struggle. Horror allows us to understand the world better. It makes us more stable, not less so. Tackling horror without kids gloves allows for a more authentic representation of the darker aspect of the human experience. It does not shy away from the harsh realities that might be present in a truly frightening situation. Horror, as a genre, often thrives on pushing societal and cultural boundaries, but being as authentic as it can be. Storytellers can challenge norms, question taboos, and explore uncomfortable subjects, pushing the audience to confront their fears and beliefs. And that requires assuming a mature and capable audience can handle intense content. And yes, that includes the children watching and acknowledging their ability to engage with challenging narratives. That does not mean all horror is meant for children. There are some concepts that must be tailored to a young audience until they are of appropriate age to engage with those type of stories. But without softening the edges, and if you do wish to appeal to the broadest range of people, a horror story can deliver a much more profound emotional impact. Unfiltered and intense experiences resonate much more strongly with any audience, eliciting genuine fear 
and leaving a lasting impact on them. That is why I want Finance of Fridays to return back to its roots. That is why I am so vocal on these changes to the Finance of Fridays video games, and why I was so blunt and objective in my review of Help Wanted 2. And it is why I'm also so excited to discuss these three novellas with you all. Oh, and be prepared. Philosophical Nick is all over this episode. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. What? You think I'm a robot? B7-2 a sequel to B7, and one of only three novellas to be a two-parter strewn across different books in the series. I'm gonna be honest, this book is the first to break the formula the previous novellas had introduced, where in which one novella focused on the Pizzaplex, one focused on the lore, and the final one would be more akin to Fazbear Frights, a one-off story. This novella collection doesn't exactly have a Pizzaplex in her story, more so just two Fazbear Fright one-offs, but whatever. B-72 begins with Billy waking up in a sterile hospital room, his memory gradually piecing together the events that led him there, his belief that he was a robot and how he lived in that deluded dream for almost his entire life, to the point that even undergoing surgeries that removed his limbs in order to replace them with mechanical prosthetics. However, Billy is surprised to find cessation in his right arm and left leg again, despite them supposedly being made of metal. He later learns from his caretaker, Dr. Hera, that his survival in his attempted suicide via metal compactor has been attributed to dumb luck. The junkyard owner, an avid bird watcher, spotted a rare bird on a station wagon, and when he went to look closely at it, he noticed bloodstains from the accident just in time. The medical team, led by Dr. Hera, miraculously addressed the severe injuries and removed all of Billy's modifications, except for any irreversible changes like the amputated limbs and altered ears and tongue storing all the pieces they took out in the morgue in the basement of the hospital for the time being. Billy's left leg and right arm were reattached, with his left leg originally only being surgically altered and numbed to appear robotic, and his arm being found in a freezer at the illegal medical center that Billy's surgeon ran when it was raided by the police. While Billy's body healed, physical therapy became imperative. Prosthetics were offered to Billy, but declined hastily due to the trauma they had caused him in the past. That past, made by his own decision-making, also resulted in psychological evaluation mandated by the state, determining Billy's competence to make decisions by himself. Over the course of his hospital tenure, Billy was motivated to live his life by his own decision-making, and without the need for prosthetics, despite the difficulty he would endure to do so. Every day, he would meet with his physical therapist, Angie, who continually worked and motivated him to improve his mobility. He made friends with the nurses who took care of him and helped him explore himself through trying out different foods and fashion choices. He even asked one of the nurses who was fond of knitting if she could help him make a hat for him to cover his bald head so people wouldn't be bothered by his missing ears. He reunited with his old therapist, Dr. Lindstrom, as well as some old childhood friends before he suffered his psychological episode. But most importantly, his grandmother, whom he had not seen in over two decades, but her love had never faulted for him in all that time came to visit him and offered to let him stay at her home when he was released.
Despite the challenges of not returning to the real world as Billy, the love and support he was getting from those around him was empowering him every step of the way. That was until one night, deep into the nocturnal hours, Billy was awoken by a mysterious yet familiar voice. It was beckoning him, guiding him, and almost hypnotically commanding him to find him. Billy was caught in the daze of the voice's siren words. Despite the struggle, he was able to limp his way to the depths of the hospital, all the way down to what Billy discerns to be a vault room. However, just in the nick of time, a security guard apprehends Billy, questioning what he was doing down here. Billy states he was sleepwalking, unless the guard escorted him back to his room, which, in effect, wasn't entirely a lie. Because when the guard caught him, it finally snapped Billy back into control and realized who was speaking to him from the cabinet. Or, more accurately, what was speaking to him. His other half, B7. At first, Billy believed it was just a hallucination, nothing more. But the following morning, he awoke to the sound of wet dripping and clicking metal. He looked on the floor and could see trails of blood and motor oil leading from the doorway underneath his hospital bed. He attempted to flee, but the hospital staff apprehended him again, believing that he was undergoing a panic attack or a hallucinatory episode. But whether it was real or everything still in his head again, he could hear his other half speak to him more clearly than ever. It wanted back in. It was incomplete without Billy, and it tried to convince him that he too wasn't full without B7. Life was so much simpler, easier, and safer when they were together. So why not return to one another and rejoin again? Upon awakening, Billy is overcome by an inexplicable sense of dread, prompting an urgent call to his head nurse Gloria. Gloria attributes his emotional turmoil to a potential panic attack, which satisfies Billy for the moment, but he's left bewildered by the origins of his fear, as he cannot fully recollect who or what caused this sudden stress. The ensuing weeks see Billy depart in opting to reside with his grandmother in the idyllic countryside. Living with his grandmother in her antiquated lifestyle, devoid of modern technology beyond that of a rotary phone by her bed, it took some time to get used to, as Billy also needed to get used to being Billy himself. But along with his grandmother's support, he begins to slowly put himself back together. He decided that for his current self, he will embrace the role of dutiful grandson. Billy crafts a daily routine over the ensuing days. Mornings are reserved for shared breakfasts where he does the dishes, followed by afternoons on the porch, indulging in a refreshing drink in quiet serenity of nature with his grandma. Evenings are dedicated to board games with her as well. Every Sunday, Billy goes with, although a better term may be forced to go along with, his grandma to church. Billy was at first hesitant not for any particular religious purpose, but more so his appearance in a setting that he was unfamiliar with. Broken people belong in hospitals, he thought, and even though he wore a hat to cover his missing ears, how would he be seen and treated in a social gathering? The answer? Warmly. The church community was open to Billy and treated him no different than most, beyond the occasional inquiry of his condition and a swift apology if he wished to not retell. There was even a private eye novel author named Frank who extended an invitation to a fishing trip with Billy so he could familiarize himself with the community even more. Fishing and talking with Frank, learning more about his job and the stories he wrote, 
inspired Billy in the author's craft. Given Billy himself was limited in what he could do physically for employment, perhaps the job of an author would be his responsibility in life. Frank believed so as well, especially given his own story could be used to inspire so many people. He even gives Billy with his own writing journal and advises him to write freely every day as part of his routine. However, as the subsequent weeks unfold, Billy begins to notice as he writes at night that his grandmother has a habit of answering and talking on the phone every night. The nightly ringing, precisely at 9.03pm every time, was always a bit strange. But one night, Billy put the side of his head to the door and realized his grandmother was whispering through the phone, almost in a reassuring tone. Whoever she was speaking to, she wanted to be kept secret, even from Billy. To quickly reiterate my love for the original B7, the reason why I believe it to be one of the best stories written in the FNAF franchise, or at the very least the most frightening, is because of how real it is. There is no paranormal magic, no hypnotic patter, no advanced robotics, nothing in the apparent realm of fiction. It's petrifying because the events could indeed actually happen, and what is even worse, it is pain being inflicted upon oneself through a tragic mental episode. One of the most alarming and horrifying experiences that you can have in your life is to know and care for someone deeply, but watch them make decisions you know will hurt them and send them down a spiral that will lead to unmitigated suffering of their own volition. B7 perfectly re-encapsulates that emotional turmoil as you read Billy rationalize every single decision he makes, and similar to those closer to him, sit idly by as he wastes away his own life. The fact the story ends with a both an awakening to his dreamlike state, followed by the realization that everything one does in this world cannot be undone, ending in the climax ultimately being Billy deciding to kill himself so that he could feel human once more, is the darkest and most disturbing thing I think the series has ever seen. If B7 were to dispose of a lesson, it would be to not let your life go by in a fantasy. Because once you come back to reality, you realize how much you miss and how many opportunities had been wasted. If you're curious to hear more on my thoughts on that, we do have a Shadow Scrying episode, How FNAF Displays the Horror of Living in a Fantasy, that goes deeper on my thoughts on both B7, along with a few other FNAF novellas that dissect this topic. To that end, I was always hesitant when B7-2 was announced. The original, in my eyes, was perfect. No changes were necessary, because the harsh messages and dark undertones were sound. Even more so, the added element of this other half of Billy gaining sentience made me wary. The original entry was so immersive, because there was nothing to suspend your disbelief in. There were no fantastical elements to interfere with the immersion. But when I finally read, then reread the story of B7-2, it helped me realize that this was always planned, and what the true purpose of Billy's story was. It's almost like a death of and rebirth of Billy. He has killed that part of him that is constantly beckoning him back, that lie that makes life easier, and gave him a faux comfort, almost like an addiction. But with the help and sacrifice of a loved one, that support of his community, 
and the compassion of the hospital workers, he was able to recover both mentally and physically and overcome his trauma to begin living again. There will be times in your life when things will terrify you into paralysis. And those events will take you away from your usual current standings into that world of darkness I was talking about earlier. Similar to how Billy used to live his life as B7 in the basement of his house, or how he was drawn towards that unsettling voice in the dark recesses of the hospital basement, he was living in darkness. But B7 was a story and how one can be convinced that despite living in the darkness, deep below ground, you can believe that you are in effect living in the light, and are standing on somewhat of a foundational level. But the more you are convinced of this lie, this dreamlike state, the deeper into the recesses of the darkness you go until you ultimately begin to drown in it. B7-2, however, challenges the notion that being consumed by that darkness is not necessarily the end. That despite the tragedy, whether it be self-inflicted or external, we have the capacity to be reborn. FNAF in a way already has some edifice in that with its supernatural world with spirits possessing inanimate objects to linger on in the mortal world, or in the most symbolic and almost literal rebirth in the series, that of the story of Michael Afton. But in the case of B7-2, it showcases that if you're able to drop and replace that core component of you who you are, that core component you know is wrong and ultimately hurting you, it can be painful and arduous, almost like a thorn in your side that is just deep enough in the skin you can barely get a grasp on it with your nails, but it's also just long enough that it will take some time before you fully pull it out. It's agonizing. But ultimately, you will not nearly be as excruciating as keeping that thorn inside of you to wriggle and cut you up and slowly kill you from the inside. It takes courage to do that, to change yourself, but most importantly, it takes a support structure. Some problems, some changes, you can't be stoic and rely on yourself. You will sometimes have to rely on others. We are... We are human beings, for God's sake. We are social creatures by design. Would that not then necessitate that some problems must then be solved through camaraderie and communication? In both books, there are two scenes that showcase this aspect perfectly, both in some way small, but major in the impact of Billy as a character and his journey. In the original B7, when Billy's mom commits suicide in her bathtub, the police and EMTs arrive at the scene immediately. Only one officer, who seems to be new to the area, actually goes to check up on Billy to see how basically a young boy is doing with the death of his own mother. Everyone involved, including her superiors, tell her to not even bother because they know Billy. They know he is emotionless and weird, and they know he won't change. He has become someone the town is wary of, the quote, robot kid with no emotions, so walk across the street if you see him coming by. Don't pay him the time of day. Compared to B7-2, Billy is well aware of how society will view him and has now the wisdom to know the actions taken by others because of how he used to be. The people in the hospital were nice, but how much of that was their job and how much of that is real? Even if you believe the latter, there will always be a nagging doubt like that in his mind. So he goes to a church, by all accounts a gathering place, 
a community center. And what happens? He is welcomed, not judged. He is able to integrate freely as one of the people there. And through their kindness, especially that of Frank, who went as far as to treat him to a fishing trip, Billy was even able to become inspired to find purpose and a career in his life. The same happens when his grandma lets him live in her cottage, uncoddled and forced to live by her structured rules. Billy's ultimate undoing was the result of his mother becoming too caring that resulted in him unable to function in the outside world. And by all accounts, the love that she thought was a shield was ultimately a weapon holding him hostage. We are all capable of being reborn into better versions of ourselves. But we also need to have others there to help us along the way on that journey. After all, when a baby is born, the parents don't expect them to already know how to walk, right? As humans, we are not one or the other, but both. The reborn and the carers. If you are struggling, find the closest person you have. Family, friend, teacher, co-worker, priest, what have you. Let them know your struggle and pain. And in return, for that we also must be observant to those too hesitant to showcase their pain and offer shoulder for them to lean on. We are not defined by our problems. We are referenced by name. None of us are B7. We are Billy. We are human. We are fallible. But we are adaptable. And we are always redeemable. Ah, uh, what am I worried about? I got plenty of friends. I can name three right off the bat. The gang's all here. Alone Together is both our second story in book number eight and our second Fazbear Fright-style novella in it. If you wanted to, you could stretch this to be our Pizzaplex book, but it's a pretty big stretch. It's also probably the most supernatural story in the entire Tales from the Pizzaplex series. Besides frailty, the majority of tale stories are more based on the science fiction side of the Finds of Freddy's world instead of the supernatural side. So it's nice to return somewhat to the series' roots in the paranormal. Our story surrounds a young boy named Travis Hutchins, a reticent seventh grader with a penchant for working with his hands, and who grapples with social anxiety, with his only souls is that of an imaginary bubble that shields him from unwanted attention. His already introverted nature intensified after his mother's departure, leaving his father emotionally distant and family dinners steeped in silence. The absence of parental encouragement leads Travis to withdraw from the school activities and estrange himself from his former friends. Travis's only outlet for self-expression, and the only place he can lose himself in, is in the art of crafting in woodshop. This current semester's pivotal project challenges students to venture beyond their comfort zones by creating something unique. While there are various projects they could tackle, Travis contemplates creating a machine called the Mechanical Turk, a chess-playing cabinet with a humanoid figure as an opponent. Deviating from convention, Travis envisions the figure that would play chess to be the son from the Freddy Fazbear's Mega Pizzaplex. Despite never having been there himself, he thinks it would be a great way of making new friends with those who had gone. Subsequent research in the school library uncovered that the Mechanical Turk was an illusion operated by a person within it, 
Using a crawl space underneath the chessboard, they operated it to create the illusion of a mechanical opponent. A sense of deja vu haunts Travis as he sketches the cabinet's interior, and he subsequently begins to encounter a random new girl who seems to be staring at him, alongside vivid dreams which just further blurs the boundaries between reality and imagination. One surreal dream in particular involved the completed mechanical Sunman playing a game with Glamrock Freddy of all people. Yet the sun kept whispering to Travis about how all of this seems familiar, like the sun rising and setting. When the sun man opens in the mechanical construct underneath, Travis crawls into it to see what is inside, only to be trapped within the wooden confines. While his father continues to be nonverbal to him when he talks about his lucid dreams, Travis's grandmother, who we occasionally visit in the retirement center, claims that it's possible he is being haunted by a spirit of a child who once completed the mechanical Turk. When he asked what he can do, she responds that the only solution is to find the spirit itself for answers, and the only way to do that is to find out where it is located on the school grounds. I can't exactly go into any further part of this story without spoilers, so we unfortunately have to stop the plot synopsis there. Alone Together is probably most similar to Coming Home from the original Fazbear Frights. The story of Susie, the victim of the MCI who would go on to possess Chica, and most importantly, that of her family trying to continue living life with that key part of their family gone. The rules of the paranormal have always fluctuated in FNAF on how exactly it works. Call me a nerd, but I've always used Star Wars and their midichlorians as sort of a base for how it operates. In that everyone has this untapped ability, it's just more present and apparent in others. There is a precedence for this. Think of how some spirits, like the MCI victims, need the puppet to help them in order to possess an object, whereas the Aptims, William, Michael, and the Crying Child, if you believe he is Golden Freddy in particular, are capable of displaying much more powerful supernatural feats, even without the use of external remnant and agony. For no other reason, it seems beyond the fact that an Aptim family soul seems to be stronger and more reactive to supernatural forces. Alone Together does kind of give credence to this theory with how Travis's grandmother discusses how some people are able to see spirits and ghosts while other humans cannot. Travis's grandmother explains that there are five signs that a ghost is haunting you. For the sake of intellectual curiosity, let's apply this to Michael Afton, just for the fun of it. First, you have to have funny dreams and flashes of memories that are not yours. She explains it's as if they possess your thoughts when they're near. Now, let's consider Michael and the gameplay of FNAF 4, which most agreed to be a quasi-hallucinatory visage of the crying child relaying memories and experiences to his older brother during his time in the original Finance of Freddy's, memories in which we will get to a bit more context to in the subsequent story Dittophobia. 2. You can feel chills or a tingle on your arms or back when they're around. Can't really say whether or not Michael has ever felt this, but this is also such a generic ghost phenomenon that we could probably just assume that it's happened before. 3. There could be sudden movement of objects or sounds out of the blue. The atmosphere of the original Finance of Freddy's is pretty much this. The carousel that doesn't exist but can't be heard, the environment fluctuating with posters changing images or words being altered on paper, and even things like the cupcake and paper plates moving around. 4. If a ghost really attaches themselves to you, sometimes you can hear their thoughts in your head, 
as if the ghost is talking to you. Beyond Golden Freddy's laugh, we even get visuals of such in FNAF 1 with the omnipresent It's Me. Also, does anyone else think it's funny that the FNAF movie had that message appear and just like the original games, it didn't mean anything and was super random? Like, anyone else find it funny that the famous It's Me line never really had meaning until both FNAF 2, FNAF 4, and Sister Location provided more context for it? Just me? Anyway. 5. If you are really gifted, and it is pretty rare, you might even see the ghost with your own eyes. And we know Mike can see Golden Freddy just fine. Now, this theory slash application may not hold too much weight. After all, Jeremy Fitzgerald also was able to see Golden Freddy. Although it is interesting that Golden Freddy only appeared for him after a murder spree, and thus an influx of agony has spread across the area. So perhaps it is more so a result of the environment than anything. After all, Golden Freddy was most likely always there even before that second MCI incident. But I digress. I mainly think it is an interesting thing to muse about, especially since the more recent entries in FNAF only seem to bring in the paranormal as an afterthought more so than anything else. See, for example, the blob, or the tangle, or molten Freddy spaghetti, or whatever you want to call that thing in the bottom of the pizza plex that has pretty much no lore relevance. I also really enjoy stories in the FNAF universe that do a good job on examining tragedies and the after effects of it. It was one of the many reasons I think coming home was so excellent in Fazbear Frights. We have been told so many times that children have died in this series, and the number just increases over time, that we can get desensitized to it. It's always important, especially in regards to my early statements of using horror to peer into the darkness, to showcase an honest display of the aftermath of how the death of a child affects the family of said child if you plan to use it in your story or fictional world. It pays respect to such a tragedy and to those who could have been affected by it, and provides a better understanding to those who have never experienced an incident a glimpse on what such an awful experience it is, putting into full perspective how evil one has to be to ever do such an action willingly and gleefully as William Afton had done. I'm going to be discussing the conclusion to Alone Together so as to fully articulate my point. So if you wish to not be spoiled, please skip ahead by five minutes. For those of you who have ever read the story, do not care for spoilers, let's discuss that final twist of the story. The truth that Travis discovers at the very end of the story is that the departure of his mother was not the result of her death, but that his mom and dad had separated after a death in the family. And that death of the family and the spirit that was haunting Travis was none other than Travis himself. When Travis rediscovers the mechanical Turk with a dead body inside it, the dead body of the spirit that was supposedly haunting him, he realizes the dead body is his own, and his memories flood back to him. Travis was a shy seventh grader who had chosen to build the mechanical Turk with the Sun Man. One day, he decided to test out the nearly finished mechanical Sun Man. However, Travis had accidentally cut the wood too precisely, and the door became stuck. No matter how hard he tried, the door wouldn't open and he suffocated. Travis continued his life normally as a ghost afterwards, not understanding why his parents began fighting and eventually separating. The girl that I had mentioned earlier that was staring at him curiously 
and who in other parts of the plot seemed freaked out by him whenever he went to talk with her, was in fact one of those gifted people his grandmother had mentioned to Travis who could see spirits of the dead. His grandma, too, had passed in her sleep shortly after Travis went missing. She came back because Travis was thinking of her, and she knew he had to find his own answers. His dad talked and made dinner as if Travis was still there, which is why Travis both never questions his existence, and also never questioned why his father never talked to him. When Travis began working on the Mechanical Turk with his father while he was a spirit, it was actually Travis's dad who built it. He looked into his old notebook and began working on Travis's woodshop project in an attempt to feel better, but it instead brought so much pain, he got rid of it. Despite this newfound knowledge that he was dead, Travis feels relieved for the first time in a while now that he and his body can be together. Because what feels like in the first time in his life, or I guess, at the end of his life, he knows he will never feel alone again. If B7-2 is about how not every ending is the conclusion to one story, but the possibility that all endings can't have a sequel, so to speak, then Alone Together is the story about finality when the end-all be-all conclusion finally arrives. It is necessary to be strong in the face of death, because death is so intrinsic to life. There is a reason why the five stages agreed end with acceptance, because it is only through the acceptance of the consequences that come, not to put consequences in a negative term, but just as an outcome of a given situation, can you be able to be strong enough to confront whatever life is throwing at you, even death. The journey of Travis in the story is pretty much the encompassment of a very old saying, but one of which of great wisdom. That which we need the most will be found where we least want to look. Travis, by all accounts, does not desire to be told he is dead. He passed away at such a young age for him to have died. But to continue to live life as an observer is by no means a supplement to that of which was unfortunately taken away from him. It is only when you stand up and search in that darkness, when you reach in the darkest parts of your story, to discover the brightest light. And that is worth discovering because you are in turn worth a damn. We will talk more about this in Didophobia because I believe that in the discussion of finality and, and the facing the darkness it brings into frame, it is the most poignant interpretation of what happens when you flee that calling, when you allow yourself to succumb to dread or lie to yourself about your situation or habits, that is when you ultimately die. That is when you ultimately suffer. I don't desire to suffer, personally, <laughs> and I would not desire that suffering onto any of you listening. Yes, even you, Steelwall developers. <laughs> but, you know... I think most would agree that if we would see someone we love suffering, if they were a family member or a friend or even our dogs and cats, if they were suffering because decisions they were making, circumstances being unfavorable, or just chance by the random events that is the chaos of life, we would all hope that we would be strong enough to help that person we love in our hearts to the best of our abilities. Yet. Despite this, and I have a lot of friends both in real life and my online life that I know personally enough that when it comes to themselves, they almost actively choose not to improve themselves. 
if there was a button that could instantly improve the life of someone they loved, I know for a fact that my friends would press that button so hard their hands bled. But if I told them that same button would do it for them, they would hesitate. They'd question it, because I think deep down, when it comes to our human decision making and the consequences of, there's almost this perverse internal judgment that we deserve to suffer because we aren't worth it. We have an identity crisis to the person we put forth and the person we know deep down inside of us. And we convince ourselves that somehow they're two different people when they are in fact one and the same. Because if you second guess yourself and when the time comes when you can't voluntarily look and search in the darkest parts of you and bad things start to happen, that's when you willingly allow them to occur as if you were trying to atone for some sin. Now imagine that's how you felt on your deathbed. That you deserved to die. That you deserved to be gone from this world. Does that sound right at all? It shouldn't. And you know it isn't right either. If B7-2 tells us that at any time we can be reborn, we can change who we are and turn ourselves from what we loathe to become and discover who we truly want to be, through determination and the love, sacrifice, and support of others. Alone Together showcases that by taking on that role, giving 100% when that final page in your series of stories come, you can be at peace with the words that have been written. And to do that, you gotta love yourself and the person you are, all of what you are. I assure you, I am very real. This time, there is more than an illusion to fear. Dittophobia, our final story in both this book and the entire Tales from the Pizzaplex book series, as well as our heaviest lore novella. Lore heavy it is, and I'm just going to say, despite my philosophical monologues going on in this episode when it comes to conclusions and endings and how I really enjoy and appreciate the deeper meaning in them, I am not about to defend this book and all subsequent material that pertains to Finance of Phrase 4. The original story has always been superior. It was a lot cleaner and easier to understand, with its only issue really being that of its purpose in the overall storyline, which Scott could have answered at any point, but just decided not to, leaving us betrothed to annual FNAF 4 lore entries that somehow answer one thing but creates like four more questions in the process, without ever answering the true mystery of who the crying child is. As for Dittophobia itself, it begins with 70-year-old Rory awakening past midnight, disturbed by a small, unidentifiable noise. To his horror, the two doors to the side of his room swing open, revealing nightmarish figures emerging with piercing white pupils. A pirate's hook extends from the closet, accompanied by a grotesque, rotting fox. From the hallways, a decaying chicken holding a cupcake with razor-sharp teeth approaches, and an eerie bunny with its torso fully revealed to be made up of mechanical limbs begins to limp forward. Paralyzed by fear, Rory witnesses their slow approach before attempting to flee, but is caught off guard when, from below his bed, he's attacked by a mutilated brown bear.
upon waking from his nightmarish ordeal, Rory calms himself down before beginning his normal daily routine. Unanswered calls from his parents lead him to assume they are preparing for work, although he does notice that the ventilation shafts in his room are now audibly hissing. Still, nothing unusual. As he continues his mundane routine to prepare for his school, he makes a quick snack for breakfast before leaving through the front door. Except, there was no front door. He knew where it was supposed to be, but it wasn't there. He spent the entire day navigating the house with locked doors and a mysterious absent front door. He can't find his parents either, so they must have left and he must not have noticed. But he could not find an exit. He was getting worried and increasingly fatigued from his search. Until he noticed that it was getting dark outside. It was time for bed. He put up his belongings before going into his room, putting on his PJs, and tucking himself into bed. This repeats over and over and over again. Every day he wakes up, makes himself a small breakfast, packs up for school, can't find the front door, calls out for his parents that don't respond, yet he could still hear them, realizes that it's almost bedtime, takes a shower, preps for bed, and goes to sleep, always resulting in a nightmare where in which colorful robots wearing disfigured animal costumes encroach on him before pulling him apart limb from limb, only to reawake and start the cycle all over again, never questioning the cycle and reacting to the daylight and the darkness in an almost Pavlovian response. That is until one day, when doing his daily search for the front door, he hears a sound he has never heard before during the cycle. The sound of a failing engine. Except, it sounded like it was coming from the walls. Not only that, the normal and soothing hissing that would emit from the vents had ceased. Nighttime was approaching again, and Rory, as usual, stuck to his routine and ready himself for bed. In an unexpected twist, Rory awakens feeling rejuvenated, not even a nightmare that thrusted him from slumber. But that was only because a new nightmare was about to unfold in front of him. As he got out of his bed, he noticed that not only were his legs extremely hairy, but his PJs were absolutely too small for him. He stood up to get a new pair of clothes on, to both simultaneously realize how dirty the carpets were and how tall he had now become. He went into the bathroom, which reeked of sewage, and the shower head and bath floor was covered in mold, and looked into the mirror to see that he had suddenly had aged in over a decade in one night. His voice had deepened, and his body is now bony and hairy. It was all so surreal. He went back into the hallway and noticed that there were hidden tracks on the floor. He followed them to closets he had never seen before. He opened both to find a rotting bunny and chicken robot torso on wheels. He went back into his room and opened the closet. A degrading fox bot was curled up in there. He looked underneath the bed to find a disembodied bear bot with several smaller versions of it on strings next to it. He went into the kitchen to find some sustenance, only to discover that the fridge he had always ate from not only wasn't a fridge, but was not serving anything he had ever eaten before. It was instead a dispensing machine that injected waffle-like wafers and wrapped plastic. The nutrition facts on the back revealed that they were basically nutrition bricks that provided all the sustenance someone needed to survive off of. Although, based on Rory's skinny and frail body, he hesitated to believe that.
But then again, what could he believe? As he soon discovered after tearing open the fridge dispenser, revealing a small corridor behind it, the failed engine he had heard was truly inside the walls, but it wasn't powering any electrical components. It was powering a complex tube system dispensing tanks of chemical air into the fake house. This whole time, Rory had been living in a fabricated reality fueled by hallucinogenic gas. In fact, he seems to have been part of an experiment as a set of observer notes nearby suggested he had been monitored by some type of scientist on the reaction of fear in children when presented in a scenario where they suffer from night terrors but limited by only the necessary amount of REM sleep needed in order to stay alive. They wanted to know what could happen if a child faced the same horrors night after night with no real life during the day to balance the awfulness of the nightmares. And Rory, seemingly, was the last of those experiments. He notices a small doorway leading out and decides to follow. Taking a flashlight he found along the way with him, it begins to walk through a series of corridors. The first is an observation station with colored lights and a poster with a red pigtailed girl on it. The next is a big dance floor with a stage. On the stage is a metal ballerina frozen in place at sister location. It's Circus Babies Entertainment and Rentals from sister location. I don't know how obvious either I or the book has to make it. They even straight up call Funtime Auditorium, Funtime Auditorium. Like, we had everything in that building except the scooper room. Rory even finds blueprints in the crawl space Michael Apton used that showcase how the whole thing is some underground facility. Now, going into theory territory, there is credence to the fact that the FNAF 4 rooms were connected to such a location in the break room. In the break room section on night two, if you look at the map, specifically where it says observation rooms one and two, you can see that both the FNAF 4 bedroom and the fun with plush trap minigame are both linked to such a location facility via long corridors. Additionally, even the FNAF 4 8-bit minigame map can be discovered in the top left, further cementing that, yes, these are all indeed the same areas from that game. Nightmare experiment theory has always been a present theory ever since this location released, but, and let's be honest, it's not exactly a popular one, not because it didn't have credence, but because similar to Grekbot, if it's true, it's just kind of lame. Because all it really does is overcomplicate the story of FNAF 4 for seemingly no reason, in addition to kind of soiling the original starker concept for its night gameplay. Before any of these additions to the lore, FNAF 4's nights were an actual clever twist on the setup of the story. You are led to believe that you are experiencing the haunting nightmares of a traumatized and abused young boy, only for him to awake into a new nightmare in the daylight at the hands of his older brother, Michael Afton. The twist at the end, and one of the reasons why the Bite of 83 was such a memorable moment, you know, besides the obvious, Was that the Bite of 87? No. Was that it revealed that the night gameplay wasn't occurred in the cutscenes, but rather took place at the very end, after the crying child had his head crushed by Fredbear. These were his dying dreams, and he was being tormented over and over and over again by corrupted facsimiles of the closest things he considered as friends, only to die in a hospital, 
which is why FNAF 4 has hospital easter eggs like an IV trip, flowers, and pills by his bed because it was originally hinting at that reveal and now it doesn't really work with the current retcon lore, oops, and passes away once his brother finally apologizes, lamenting for what he had done, with a small hint from the boy's favorite plush fredbear that he will be put back together and that he may in fact come back. Nightmare Experiment really only overcomplicates this plot because the problem with the lore of FNAF 4 was never why it was happening, it was always why does the crying child matter? And Scott indirectly made it so that it didn't really matter who he was after the introduction of Michael Afton in Sister Location. The story of FNAF 4 now had a purpose as the origin story of Michael and why he was so willing to sacrifice himself and make amends for himself and his father's actions as the story's overarching protagonist. While most, myself included, would prefer the crying child to be Golden Freddy, as it allows for the best narrative, I think most would agree that if the crying child turned out to be no one, it still would have been fine because FNAF 4 would have still had a point to the overall story. The answer, why does the crying child have nightmares specifically, was never actually a big concern. That's not to say the game doesn't make it a prevalent mystery in the story, but the game also kind of hints at both the MCI being the reason for it, or at the very least the actions of Michael, which I guess in a way Scott cored himself in that regard once he started making the date of the MCI consistently 1985. FNAF 4 takes place in 1983, so things had to change as a result similar to how FNAF 4 was supposedly supposed to be about the Bite of 87, as previously hinted by Scott himself in the teasers, only to realize that Bite of 87 already had answers in the form of Jeremy Fitzgerald in FNAF 2, so we had to scrap that whole concept. The idea of William using his son as a test subject isn't exactly out of character. He pretty much used Elizabeth in the same way in both the canon and novel trilogy lore. I will say I am not the biggest fan of William Afton dabbling in what is essentially Scarecrow fear toxin from Batman. Like, how did he even set this up? Like, I was thinking about this too because Poppy Playtime Chapter 3 came out and I had a similar, like, concept. How is this even happening? Afton Robotics has multiple employees and investors, right? The facility wasn't just run by him. People helped him build it. Contract work was done. Hell, the whole beginning of Sizzlication was about how the board of Afton Robotics discovered that Funtime animatronics were programmed to kill people, and they were trying to get William Afton to admit it on record. How on earth did he get away with this, and with seemingly multiple children? This story also throws a whole freaking lot of the timeline and lore into question, because as you may have noticed, when Rory is walking through the security baby's rental facility, the fun times are still there. And they don't interact with him at all. Okay, so, um, two things. One, I thought the whole reason why the Sea Bear facility needed to be manned all the time and why it was so dangerous was because the fun times were both basically caged animals and experiments. This was also even hinted in Fazbear Frights in the story Room for One More in which the Minarinas are the main threat because, as showcased in the location itself, it seemed like the fun times had a lot more autonomy and were simply incapable of being completely shut off, hence why the game had you submit them to control shock so you could correct their bad behavior. 
but as we see in Dittophobia, Rory can just walk anywhere and is completely fine. In fact, he does a lot of walking. The book actually describes the facility incorrectly in the most hilarious way. The book states he walks through corridors from room to room when it is very clear from the description of where everything is located that Rory is supposed to be traveling through the same vent system Michael used, which to me actually hints to this addition of the fun times being here as a possible error by the writers that Scott may have overlooked. Now, let me explain why. Because it all relates to the second strange thing Didophobia does to the timeline, Rory later in the story gets a walkie-talkie and actually communicates to an old friend of his on the surface. And the conversation heavily hints that the story is taking place in or around a decade after he had been originally kidnapped. And I'm not gonna lie, it is pretty easy to see that the book is suggesting that the story took place in either the mid-90s or early 2000s, which means if the story is canon to the series and the fun times are still present, Sister Location must take place after the events of FNAF 1, which means Michael had to have gotten a job from Freddy's for absolutely no reason. And I guess Fritz Smith isn't Michael, despite the implication of such from the survival logbook. Like, Michael is still the night guard in FNAF 1, we know that to be true, but it seems to me and many others the only reason then FNAF 1 would have any lore purpose would be because Michael was trying to search for his father after the events of Sister Location. This kind of retroactively makes that entire game now null and void, it's pointless. I mean, I guess it sets the stage for Golden Freddy, who, if there's any consolation to this random convoluted story, now has to be the grandchild if this theory is to be believed. Because, like, why the hell would any child trust Mike if they didn't recognize him as Mike? Because the whole point of Mike is that he looks like William because that's how Michael also perceives himself to be, and that was the whole point you made him purple, Scott. But at the same time, there's also precedence to believe that this is simply an error in translation from Scott the Creator and the writers taking orders and creative liberties. After all, we know the books aren't immune to these mistakes. Recall the infamous submechnophobia error of characters mentioning there were multiple pizza plexes which later resulted in a reprint. This could be a similar situation with the writer's choice of words and descriptions accidentally contradict the previously established lore that Scott did not notice. Writers do make mistakes. <sighs> Alright, that's enough negative Nancy lore discussion. Now, let's get into the artsy philosophical talk to end off this... Wow, that is a runtime. Okay, so once again, we are about to discuss spoilers. If you wish to not be spoiled, skip ahead to about five minutes for the wrap-up. We got some announcements at the very end of this, so be sure to at the very least stay to hear that. Alright. Everyone ready? Okay. So. The ending. The ending to Didophobia has Rory attempted to dismantle the machine in the fake house he has been living in to get the generator that is powering it, because he could possibly use that to power the elevator in the back of the facility to escape, which would have been a surprise for Mike, wouldn't it? Rory begins to dismantle the back of the machine when a low and smooth voice from a middle-aged man comes from the speaker. The voice ignores Rory's questions and instead reminds Rory of all the things he hated about his past. Rory seemingly remembers he ran away due to how unhappy he was at school with girls and with his own parents. The man tells Rory this is his home now. 
where he is safe and secure, he slowly is able to convince Rory he'll be unable to fit in with the world now that he has been 10 years. And Rory believes him. So instead of dismantling the machine, he fixes it. The gas begins pumping again, and he fixes the dispensers. Suddenly, Rory questions why he is standing in front of the fridge. He quickly gets ready for bed, unsure as to what he was doing. Meanwhile, in the corridor with the gas tanks, in the ceiling above the pump, a tape recorder clicks. It then rewinds and clicks again, ready for the next time Rory wanders too far. Even though, as we see in Location Night 5, during the end of the boss fight, despite Rory theoretically supposed to still be present in that simulated environment, he visually isn't there. Oops. Okay, sorry. Final dig on how stupid the lore is. But I have to say, after rereading this story again for this first impression review, I got it. I, I think I finally got what the metaphorical purpose of the story in conjunction with the other two is. William Afton, who is clearly the voice talking to Rory in the story, is the devil whispering to you on your shoulders, similar to B7 is to Billy. It is the worst of you talking to yourself. It's all the cynicism, bitterness, and nihilism that builds up and that you absorb when you are living in darkness and despair. Recall that, while Rory was kidnapped by William, it wasn't as if he was lured away by a man in a mascot costume. Rory ran away, ran from his friends, his family, girls, school, all his problems. B7-2 in all three novellas has this theme of the underground, in effect, the darkness, to which all the main characters' green spheres reside, most of which being that of their past selves. Billy had B7, which was locked away in a morgue because it was part of himself that he symbolically killed off and that the love his grandmother was finally able to put to rest. For Travis, it was himself, his body locked away in his contraption in a dark shed underneath a set of bleachers. But by finding his body, by confronting his past, he accepted that he had died before his time. It was important for him to figure it out himself and to accept the circumstances for why it had happened. Rory is different. He is trapped in the darkness already, completely blinded by the reality of the world and suffering as a result. And the horror is that he doesn't notice he is suffering. He literally cannot see what is in front of him. Then, the machine that runs his routine breaks down. In a similar manner to Billy in the original B7, he awakes to see how much time had passed him by. He wanders into the dark labyrinth ahead of him and discovers the truth of his circumstances, discovers how much time has passed, discovers how much of his life and his family's lives went on without him. He is ready to escape until what happens that ethereal, soothing voice reappears, as it always does. That voice of doubt that reminds you of all the past trauma and hardships and crap your life was, and how much better it is to ignore reality and to live in this fantasy. And even though Rory knows that this fantasy is harmful to him, he takes by all accounts the coward's way out and fixes the machine and allows himself to go back to sleep again ignoring the call to finally wake up. But why does he do this, you ask? It can't be simply because the voice convinces him of how bad life used to be. That's part of it. But truthfully, it, it isn't about how hard life used to be. 
It is about how hard life will be. If Rory wakes up and decides to see the light of day again, it is choosing to confront certain what-ifs. How will he adapt to his new life? How will he be able to talk to people? How will he be able to interact with his new baby sister? Could he even talk to girls if he doesn't know anything about them? He is behind by almost every account on education, technology, and politics, is he not? While being in the light and taking on responsibilities is a euphoric experience, it is not without its hardship. In this case, what Roy learns in awakening from the dark is a hard truth, no different to Billy or Travis. But Pilly, even in his choice of killing himself, inadvertently was making a choice to live again because he had killed off that part of him that was making life hell. And for Travis, who conferred the truth about his past, he was able to accept his end so that he could move on instead of languish away in a fantasy that everything was fine. Rory, instead, chose to, in what was supposed to be his moment of courage, decide to shy away and not let go of that comforting blindness. In a metaphorical sense, he chose to allow B7 back in to pretend that everything was okay. And as the story ends, we see this has been a possibly a vicious cycle that is repeated over and over and over again. If there is one lesson to be taken away from this collection of novellas, it would be to not shy away from the darkness. Bring yourself, all of yourself, to bear whatever consequences or struggles you are facing and confronted with. Because you are so much more than your circumstances. You can't be Rory and doubt yourself in the world you live in. You are not bringing your sound and rational mind where you are full of cynicism, resentment, and nihilism. And how could you see the bigger picture if you allow yourself to submit yourself to willful blindness? You can't just submit part of yourself to confront your problems, to confront the darkness. In the real world, as sad as it is to say, there's too much darkness to bear for just a part of you to confront it at a time. You need to dedicate yourself to all of yourself. Be the best damn you you can be. Because you know deep down you are better and once you start living that better self, once you start living above ground and out of the darkness, it becomes so much easier to smile, to, to laugh, and yes, even to cry. Don't get stuck in a death spiral like Rory. And miss your chance to be reborn as a new, better you. Be like Billy. Find yourself. Find your courage. Find your friends. Find your community. And find your family. And find your calling so you can be content and proud of who you are. So when the final page of your life is written, you can look back on it with acceptance and peace, like Travis, knowing you did a hell of a job out there, the best life you could have lived, because it was your life. And with that, I believe that brings us to a good stopping point for tonight's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to stay updated, please consider subscribing, following, or sharing this podcast. It truly helps us broaden our reach. Consider following us on our Twitter at Fazbear Podcast, joining our Discord, or supporting us on our Patreon or merch store using the various links in the description of this episode. I truly didn't expect this script to be both so long as well as so philosophical, but I guess when it comes to the matter of life and death, 
I don't tend to enjoy putting such a dour tone on such a topic, and I much prefer an optimistic one. Who knows? Maybe it has to do with my more recent Shadow Scryings being more inclined towards not so much the negative, but the critical into a series and fandom I love. But hey, that new Into the Pit game is looking fantastic. Steewool better take notes on atmosphere and tone. Or, you know, making good video games. Anyway, I did have a few announcements I wanted to make before we end off this episode. It's the return of the Q&A. Next episode will be a Q&A for the Into Night fans to submit FNAF theories. Ask me questions about the game series and lore, or just general inquiries about myself. If you want to submit a question, check out the description or submit a question at officialintothenightquestion at gmail.com. It's first come, first serve. So if you want a better chance to have your name and question featured on the show, submit yours quick. Alright, that should be all the updates I have for now. As always, I have been your host Nick, and I would like to thank you all once again for listening. Have a good night, and drive home safe. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.